Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today, while we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown, the opportunity to chat, because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Sunday, September the 20th, 2020, and my guest today is actor and author Samantha Giles from Kent. Samantha studied English and drama at Bristol University. She then focused on auditioning and getting an agent, and over the last two decades, her theatre credits include A Taste of Honey, Absent Friends and Season's Greetings, while her TV credits include Coronation Street, Hollyoaks, Doctors, three series of Where the Heart Is, and she's perhaps most well-known for playing the role of Bernice Blackstock in Emmerdale, which Samantha left last year. In 2000, she was nominated for an NTA for Most Popular Actress and won a TV Quick Award for Best Actress. This summer, Samantha released her first children's book, Rosemary and the Witches of Pendle Hill. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Samantha. Hello! Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, actually. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, Samantha, before we get chatting, do you have a beverage? I, I do, yes. I've got my little um, cup with my cat on it. Well, not my cat, but a cat on it, yes. It's very nice. Um, I have got um, a chocolate and vanilla tea, because um, I love chocolate. So, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Um Right, we've got so much uh, to talk about today, and I know that everybody is going to know you from Emmerdale, but I'd like to go way, way back, if that's okay. Did you have the acting bug from a young age? Was it nurtured when you were at school? Was it something you knew you always wanted to do? Yeah, I did always want to be uh, an actor, actually. I can remember from ve- being very young, walking around to my grand's uh, for lunch or whatever, and making up little stories as I was going, pretending that I was kind of, you know, from another planet that had been sent down and I had to try and find the clues to where I was going next and all the sort of daft things like that. And then, you know, I was always loved doing the school plays and, and things like that. And I can remember saying to my mum and dad that I really wanted to go to like a, um, a stage school you know because I'd heard about these and they were very very adamant no you're not doing that I mean I, I I came from a village really in Kent and my parents didn't have an awful lot of money my mum was a hairdresser just doing people's hair you know in her house and things like that and my dad was a fireman so it's a pretty working class family and the, the thought of you know sending me to stage school was oh no you know that's absolutely ridiculous one we haven't got the money and two you know you you'll turn out to be a precocious little madam so you're not doing that you know if you want to be an actor then you will do it when you're an adult so I remember feeling really really um upset that they weren't going to let me go to stage school but I just I guess you're quite adaptable as a child aren't you just get on with things so um yeah, when I was about 16, I joined the local amateur drama group um, just to sort of, you know, because if, if you if you want to be an actor, you, you'll take any opportunity to, to hone your craft and to and to do it. And so it was great because we did some fantastic plays at the local theatre. And, you know, that just fed the bug, really. So, um, and yeah. um, 
Were you doing extracurricular stuff when you were at school? I mean, were you into singing and dancing as well or, or was it just acting? No, there wasn't really, it wasn't really available then. Um, you know, when I was very little, they used to do ballet at school. I remember going and getting frustrated because we just did the same thing every week. I remember saying to my mum, I, I don't want to do this if they're not going to push us, you know. But there was no opportunities to do singing or dancing. No, definitely not. So kids today are so lucky. There are so many more opportunities, aren't there, I think, yeah. um, now. And so at 16, were you able to study drama at college? I did um, A-levels. So I did A-level theatre studies and various other A-levels. And then I kind of decided that um, I didn't want to go to drama school. I think I'd seen a programme on it or something. And I was worried that, um, that, that, that what they did was kind of break people down in, in quite a nasty way, sort of build you back up and I thought and I wasn't very confident I had a lot of confidence in what I wanted to do and I had a lot of determination but I wasn't a confident person inside if, if you know what I mean I was quite quite shy really which sounds bizarre for somebody that likes performing but I think I am shy with people even though I you know I, I love acting so uh, I did an English and drama degree at Bristol University instead which is a fabulous university, Bristol. It's interesting you say you're quite shy with people. I think a lot of actors and people in performing arts actually are quite, perhaps, introvert. But when they are performing, something else comes out and then they're able to execute that, that bigger personality that, that you need to be able to. I, I think that's almost a commonality. Yes, I think it's because... I actually like to keep my real self hidden. And so, you know, you can do that when you're playing a part because you're bringing out something else and nobody gets to see who the real real you is. So you become accustomed to keeping that hidden. And I also think, you know, I always think, God, if people actually really knew the real me, they probably wouldn't like me, you know. So, so I, I think it's safety. I definitely don't think that's true. <laughs> Um, so Samantha what was your three years at university like because doing an English and drama degree is quite different to going off and just studying drama acting theatre did you enjoy it no I hated it I absolutely hated it I I felt very lonely um, I found it very difficult to make friends I was bullied uh, psychologically in my first year um, this dreadful girl um and it was just the one of the worst experiences in my life actually I made a very good friend quite early on um I became close to actually he's he's I think he works in uh, in Glasgow now he sort of is a writer and um in the, in the theatre in the theatre world Graham Etoff and he was a great close friend because we'd come from similar backgrounds you know and then of course what happened is you you kind of you know I wasn't making friends whereas he started to flourish and make friends so we we kind of grew apart and our friendship was never the same after that really which was which was a shame but yeah I really struggled and I think the only reason I went there really was um a very good friend of mine Matthew Westwood was in the year below me and he wrote 
he wrote plays and things like that and would, and you know and and he'd seen me in something that I'd done in in the student union or whatever and he started writing for me and so we became quite close where I would perform his work and you know we've been kind of friends ever since so I think that's the only reason I was meant to go there because the rest of it was awful well done for sticking it out because a lot of people wouldn't <laughs> Well, I didn't have any choice because I used to ring my mum in tears. I mean, it's awful. I can't, I've talked about this for such a long time. Sorry. Oh, I'm so and, sorry. Um, no, it's right. It's, it's sort of weird bringing it back up. And mum would say to me, you stick it out. You, you come home on a coach and I'm going to put you straight back on the coach and you're going to go straight back. And some people would criticise that and say, well, you know, that's really, you know, that could be quite damaging to do that to somebody. But I don't think I think it was just that she felt that was the right thing to do and that I would regret it they didn't have the money to sort of say to me yeah take a year off and we'll support you and go and do something else you know so I had no choice really I mean and possibly what I should have done is changed courses and done French and drama or something because the English was very very turgid and traditional and dull uh, so you know but I think it was just the people. I, I just couldn't really connect with anybody. And, you know, there were lots of, there's lots of famous people from my year and the year above and the year below, you know, that, that have come from Bristol, which is quite strange. I mean, David Williams was in my year. Oh, wow. Um, who else? Uh, Nitin Ganatra was in the year above, who was obviously was in EastEnders for a long time. Um, Simon Pegg was in the year above me. I remember doing a festival in Frankfurt and him and I were doing technical stuff on the show. You know, I remember sitting there in the sunshine chatting to him. So it's really weird, you know, all these people that have come from that place, you know, so it, it obviously had something about it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Bristol's renowned, isn't it, for being a very creative city. Did you feel that... The drama clubs that you were part of and the student union, did that, you know, give you a sense of release? Yeah, in a way, although, you know, it was, it was very hard. I never got cast in anything. The only way I ever got cast in stuff was people that were kind of more on the periphery that weren't, weren't trendy at the time. So it was kind of always people that were on the sideline that would give me give me work the kind of main thrust the trendy people the people that everyone thought was really were really good you know they they never rated me so I kind of never really felt as if I'd got any future Mm -hmm. when I was there you know I think we underestimate how difficult going to uni can be for so many people um what happened when you came out then you graduated you got that piece of paper did you think right I am now on a mission and I am going to get an acting job and not to give up. Well, I think initially when I left, I'd, I thought, oh, I, I'm not going to make it as an actor because everyone thinks I'm rubbish. So I kind of started trying to go into children's TV presenting. Um, and I made like a little series of tapes, you know, of doing different things. And I did get a few little jobs, actually. I, I did a job in Scotland promoting a, a university. I did a, I did a job with, believe it or not, Kate Humble, who is well known now for um, presenting, isn't she, and stuff. Yeah. Well, she she was like the 
I don't know what you'd call it, whether it was the production coordinator or something. And it was for a company called Fuji TV. And um, it was like a sort of arts entertainment type program. So it wasn't really children's. It was presenting like places to go and things to do and stuff like that. It was like a pilot, which obviously didn't get picked up. But I mean, it was great experience. And then I, and then my friend Matthew, obviously the one that I, the writer one that I've met, university he'd said I've written this play called Double D and June Brown from EastEnders is going to direct it and we're going to take it to Edinburgh and I really want you to do it so he's written me a part so I did that I mean for virtually no money I think we were paid like 50 pounds a week you know for the three weeks and we rehearsed in June's flat in Folkestone she had a little lovely little flat there and um and then we kept we did that and it it was an amazing time in Edinburgh because we were mixing with all these people that were, went on to become really well known, like Steve Coogan. I remember talking, apparently I was talking to him in a bar. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, he not going to remember me and I didn't know him from Adam, you know, things like that, you know, and you look back and you go, oh my God, that was a really weird time. And, and then we did it um, in the King's Head in London and I got very close to getting an agent uh, and then it, they never made it to the show because they got stuck in traffic or something. Mm. So you just think, oh, God, all those... I've sort of had so many near... Well, every actor will tell you, there's so many near misses. You think, oh, because getting an agent is one of the hardest things ever. And everybody else in the cast had agents and I didn't, you know, and it was really... It was it was tough, you know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. It was really tough, and it never stops being tough if that's your chosen profession. But I guess you just have to keep going. Mm-hmm. Lots of people that I speak to tell me that there isn't a fallback. You know, when you want to act, when that is your calling card, there is nothing else that you will do. And did you feel that way too? Well, it's difficult. I mean, I needed to earn money because I've never been comfortable with signing on. So I think my fallback early on was cleaning and ironing and waitressing, you know, and and then obviously once you get out of your 20s, that's not something you want to be want to be doing. But I did that for quite a number of years. And then I did one of the best things I've ever, did, ever done. I did one of these crash courses in London for touch typing. Yeah. And it was a week. It was only a week. And I thought, oh, how can you teach someone to touch type in a week? Well, my God, they did. And it's been amazingly useful. I did it because I thought, oh, I can get some like secretarial temping work mm. and it would be better money, you know. So that's why I did it. And, and that's what I did. And I was very honest with all the temp agencies. I used to say... I'm an actor. If I get an audition, I'm going. And as long as you know that when you offer me a week's work or a day's work or whatever, that that comes first. So I was totally, totally honest. So I never, ever felt like the acting came second. It was like that was always the priority. Mm-hmm. And I think being honest, it, you know, people respect that really. Absolutely. And, and have you kept that skill to this day? Is it yes, something? Like, is it like a hundred words per minute or something that you learn oh, to be God, able to I'm not, do? I'm not very fast. <laughs> I'm not slow, but I mean, it's it's really great. You know, obviously now that I've been doing more writing in the last few years, I just think, oh, thank God, I learned how to touch type. It's been amazingly useful. Amazing. Did you 
eventually find an agent? Were you still on the audition circuit at this point? Yeah, I did. I did. I had a really terrible agent to start with, who I think just took anybody on. And then I and then I um, answered an ad in the local um, press thing where I was living. I was living in North London, and I had this lovely Greek lady um, called Helen Stafford, who now is in casting actually, and she was absolutely lovely. And she and she got me, you know, my first few jobs. Really, she got me. Um, coronation street i did an episode of that and then i think i did another episode a year later and she got me seen for uh this film a couple of films actually um a film that i i ended up doing with rob lowe where i had to play a belfast girl Mm -hmm. and um it had sort of german money involved and canadian so it had quite well known obviously of rob lowe then it had a couple of german actors that were well known jürgen prockner and hannes jenica and it had a, a Canadian, Michael, I can't think of his name now, that was in the shoot horses, don't they? Anyway, he was the Canadian actor, so it had money from all these different things. And so, you know, it, it was good. And then, obviously, as you start to feel like you're getting somewhere, I, I thought I needed to move on agency-wise. So, you know, that's what I did. Although I've stayed, I, uh, you know, I've stayed in touch with Helen because she was very good to me. And at this point, you were living in North London, did you enjoy that? Because you were from Kent, you went to Bristol, and then, you know, you made the move to London. Was that an easy transition? I was ready to go. You know, I, I didn't want to be at home anymore. I think it's difficult when, you know, with with girls and your mum, isn't it? Because it, you get to a certain age and you, you just don't want to be there. And, uh, you know, so I was desperate to get out. But I had found a fantastic place where I lived. It was a house in um, Southgate. And I shared it with three other Irish girls and our rent was very, very low. Then the people that owned it were absolutely lovely and they lived next door, but they were abroad. They were living abroad. So um, it was, the rent was 40 pounds a week, which even then, so that would have been when I was in my twenties. So that would have been mid nineties, early to mid nineties, something like that. Um, Yeah. So it was really cheap even then. So they they were lovely. And so you did Corrie. What was that like? It's been a massive soap really since it started. Did you think this is this is it? This is my big break? No, I didn't because I knew I was only playing um, Derek Wilton's secretary or something like that. I can't remember now or his, his ex-wife's secretary. So it was only a little a little part, just about three scenes. But and and of course. They filmed all the location stuff because it was done on location. They filmed all that on a Monday, Sunday and Mondays, I think. I don't expect it's different now. So when I went to do the job, which was either a Sunday or a Monday, it was just me and um, Peter. And he was very sweet. And so it was all gentle and, and, you know, I wasn't scared, you know. It was a bit nerve wracking, obviously, but it was it was really nice. And then what happened? Were you still trying to be a jobbing actress and make a living from jobs as well as, like you mentioned, waitressing and, and cleaning and temping? I was I was living off the, um, I mean, the acting stuff. I, I, I was getting a job once a year or something, you know, two or three days work a year. It was really, really slow, really, really difficult. So I was doing all the other stuff. The, you know, it soon became clear that I couldn't live off 
cleaning and ironing and waitressing. So then I, I obviously started doing the, the temp work, mm-hmm. which was better money and, you know, better hours and things like that. Um, so I was kind of living off that really and just keep keeping pursuing. I was offered a teaching job at Sylvia Young's school, which I turned down. Um, and actually it wasn't a difficult decision. I mean, obviously it was a full-time paid proper thingy. And I said to her, uh, I, I want, I, I still want to be an actor and auditions that. And she said, well, no, you wouldn't be able to do that if you were teaching here. So that was clear to me. I was just like, no, that's not right for me. Then thank you very much for asking, but it's not for me. And then I did um, art modelling for um, for art for life drawing classes, you know. Oh yes, which was quite took quite a lot of courage to do, but I was desperate for the money, and it was five pounds an hour, and uh, it was quite good money really. And I just thought I won't, I just won't look down, you know. I just won't look at myself. I'll just um, and, and so I do that sometimes in the evening for classes there used to be a class in crouch crouch end that um i'd do it for do you know my mum mentioned to me the other day that one of her friends when they were younger used to do that because it was such good money yeah i mean it wasn't bad you know just for standing there it was quite you know you'd really be achy afterwards and sometimes people odd people would say inappropriate things to you Mm. which was very uncomfortable generally speaking you never felt like that at all but there was just the odd time somebody would say something you think I don't think you should be in this class (laughs) (laughs) and this might sound like a ridiculous question but did that prepare you in any way for then being an actor on screen when the camera is right up close yeah that's a tricky one I've never had to do anything any nudity um at all thank god you know I've had Bed, odd bed scenes where you're just sort of snogging in the bed but always had something on and it's not been sort of a whole full-blown sex scene or anything like that so I have been lucky because I don't think I would feel comfortable with that at all I'm not I'm not very comfortable with my body I think you know the camera is very unforgiving and it does put 10 pounds on you or something I mean I you know I've, I've learned to sort of accept that you know, I'm not, I'm not fat, but you know, we've all got our bits that we don't like. And I would love to have a smaller bottom and smaller, you know, be, be slimmer on the bottom. But you know, part of that's the shape I've got and I'm, I'm healthy. I exercise every day. Um, I don't drink excessively. I don't smoke. So I'm, I'm, I'm not in bad shape really considering my age. You're in fabulous shape. Absolutely <laughs> fabulous shape. <laughs> And I think it is incredible, you know, whenever I see anyone on screen, especially women. So when did Emmerdale happen and how did it happen? Because it was 1998 that you arrived in the Dales. How did that come about? Well, it's a funny one, really, because I think I'd done a job. I'd done a job in Manchester, uh, like a a week's thing, um, where you rehearsed for four days and then on the Friday you recorded it. And um, the executive producer was Carolyn Reynolds there. And I think she was also some sort of exec or whatever on Emmerdale. And we'd had a lot of problems on the shoot. So we'd kind of had to sort of muddle through it. And then the last day when we actually shot it, 
she had to go and they had to get someone else in. I can't remember the full details. Anyway, we got through it and we had a great week. And then um, my friend Matthew was writing for Emmerdale and he said that Carolyn Reynolds had said to, was aware that he knew me and she'd watched me on this thing. And she said to, um, we need to get her into Emmerdale, which was amazing. So there was a part that had come up uh, for Trisha actually. And so I was asked to screen test for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went up and screen tested and I didn't, I didn't get the job. I remember sitting in the waiting room actually with Sheree Murphy that got the job. Yeah, it's funny. And we had to screen test with Billy Hartman who played Terry. So uh, I, I didn't get the job, so I was quite disappointed. And then I remember Matthew saying to me, don't worry, they're going to write something for you. And I said, and I just thought, yeah, yeah. And I just let it all go over my head because I thought it's really, he's just being sweet. You know, it's, it's that's not going to happen. Anyway, it did happen. They wrote this character called Bernice Blackstock and they said, we'd like you to come and do four episodes, please. So that, you know, I was thrilled with that. I didn't expect it to be anything more than that. I just thought four episodes, amazing. Thank you very much. And then I did those. And then I think about three months later, they asked me to go back for three months and then it just, it was just extended then from then on in really. Amazing. And did that, change your life very quickly um it did in 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 some ways not in the ways you think I mean it was amazing being able to go into the supermarket and buy a nice shampoo rather than just supermarket own which I know sounds really stupid I still things like that still important to me and I don't take all I don't take that for granted um because I think when you're an actor, you have these great times where you're earning money and you can, <clears throat> you know, say, come on, I'm taking you out for dinner. And then you have other times when you think, oh, my God, am I going to have enough money to pay the rent this month sort of thing? So it's important not to forget those lean times. So it changed in the, in the sense of I felt so fulfilled and it was I had the most amazing time for three years and I absolutely loved every minute of it you know, the people, the storylines. It was a fantastic job. But um, I'm quite a driven person. And I think as an actor, it's it's being creative, isn't it? And I can't just play one role forever and ever. And I just thought I need to get out now and and find another part to play, Um, which is just the way some people are. Some people will stay in a soap for donkey's years and be quite happy with that. But that's not why I went into the business. You know, I went into business to play lots of different parts. So so I made that decision to leave. And I don't think you realise how perhaps well-known or well-loved or whatever it, it was a character is until you leave the programme. Because when you're filming it, I mean, I was there Monday to Friday. I never saw anybody because I was working flat out. And then I'd fly back home because I was living in Windsor so I'd fly back home on on, late on a Friday night and just kind of go Mm -hmm. and then fly back up Sunday night so you weren't really experiencing any any other kind of normal life so when I left I was quite shocked at how that the character had been popular really because you don't really get a sense of that when you're doing it and did you feel that suddenly you were being recognized and there was more scrutiny over over you or, or did you feel again quite removed and protected from from the press and the, and the media I think that um really the media 
I never felt that that was intrusive, generally speaking. I, I, I think people seek it. And I think that a lot of the time you've got someone ringing up the press saying, so-and-so is going to be at so-and-so. And uh, so I think you can avoid all that. You know, people say, oh, I can't go anywhere. I can't do this. I can't do that. And you think, oh, darling, we'll stop phoning the press to tell them where you are then. You know, I'm sure there is a lot of that in it. Because I think if you if you want to lead a, a normal life, then you can. Um, so, and I think also I, a lot of the time I didn't get recognised because I, I I made my made sure I looked different to the character, and I think I do look different to the character. Now you won a TV Quick Award, didn't you, for Best Actress? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. and you also had an NTA nomination for Most Popular Actress in two thousand. How did both of those feel? The TV Quick Award, I wasn't able to be there, sadly, because I was on my honeymoon, my first marriage, which was a disastrous marriage. Um, So really and truly, that's a shame because it would have been lovely to have, probably would have been better to have been at the TV Quick Awards and received that. So I wasn't there. So um, the NTA nomination, yeah, that that was lovely. But I don't think you really... You know, what does it all mean, really, these awards? You were really quite young to win the award and and have that nomination as well. But it sounds to me like you are super grounded and and it's not really giving you added value by getting an award. No, no, not at all. It's just something you have to remember to, you know, I must polish it, actually, because it looks a bit rusty. But no, it is nice. I'm not saying it's not nice because it is. It is nice. But I, I have to say that I'm a very cynical when it comes to all those ceremonies, you know. And also, it's very, I know it sounds ridiculous, but, but I don't like clothes, really. And I feel anxious when I have to go to things to think, what can I wear? What do I have to, what can I put on? Not very confident with how I look and what I, what I put on. Because, you know, I'm, 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 I'll go to work and someone will say, this is what you're wearing. And I'll go, great, I'll put that on, that's the character. But when you, when you have to go to do's, you have to choose yourself what you're going to wear. Oh, that's a nightmare to me. And I, and I always think, I always choose the wrong thing. And I think, oh, God, I look awful. What should I put that on for? And it's quite stressful. And actually, it's nothing really to do with acting. So you left Emmerdale in 2002, kind of the first time. You did a, a good chunk of stints. And you went into uh, Where the Heart Is. Um, yes. Again, another big show, a well-known series. That must have felt good. Yeah, <clears throat> it was absolutely amazing to get that. I, it, was a, it was a real dream come true. I didn't expect to get that. So that was lovely and challenging because I had to do a Yorkshire accent and um so I loved it absolutely loved it I had a great time it was freezing it was ironic really I just left Yorkshire and then six months later I was back there again it's like I couldn't get away from the place so yeah it was good I had a good time on that and did you stay commuting or did you move no I stayed commuting yeah I just would go up in the week and uh back home at weekends yeah. And is it true that, you know, working on either of, of the shows, it, the, the schedule is quite gruelling? I mean, you said, you know, Monday to Friday, you know, you're busy in the thick of your job. Are you then taking home lines to learn ready over the weekend for the following week? Yeah, it wasn't so um, 
difficult lines wise with where the heart is because it was all done on film they only would film um i don't know three or four scenes in a day you know so it wasn't quite so and there was a lot more hanging around because you'd go and rehearse and then they'd send you back to your uh caravans and everything or dressing rooms so that they could light which would take 40 minutes you know to do the lighting on, for the scene so but I met the wonderful Keith Barron who played my father-in-law on that series and you know he he made it for me we had such a fantastic time for the for the couple of years that he was in it you know and and what a tragic loss you know he is he died a couple of few years ago I think about three years ago now and it doesn't seem possible you know he was such fun so you did three series of where the heart is how did you feel when you left was your diary looking blank or did you have something in the offing that you were going to go and do? Well, it was funny, really, because in some ways I probably shouldn't have left. Um, they didn't want me to leave. And I kind of felt like I've done three years. I want to I had a thing about the number three. And I thought, right, I, I did three years in Adele, I'll do three series of this and go. And actually, I probably should have stayed because there was there was only one more series, and then the, sadly, the series got axed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if I'd stayed, whether that company would have given me more work. You know, who knows? It's gone. It's in the past now. And and maybe if I had stayed, I wouldn't have met my husband because when I left, I had a job um, quite quickly lined up for um, doing the Christmas show at the. Liverpool Playhouse doing season's greetings so I hadn't done any theatre for quite a long time and um, so I was really looking forward to that and that's where I met my husband so I think it was obviously and I think if I had had have done the last series of Where the Heart Is they were um in and are in apparently when they were going to start filming and I think they would have said to me no you can't do that theatre job Mm -hmm. Um, so that would have been that but anyway so I did that and then I had um, had a taste of honey job lined up that was a tour and then after that it all was pretty quiet for a while actually and it, it was it was starting to get harder and harder um to get work what is that like as an actor when you are waiting for maybe the phone to ring you're waiting for your agent to to come up with something yeah it's pretty awful um it's awful because you feel like a part of you is dying actually that's how it feels because you're desperate to I'm I'm a, I'm a grafter you know I, I really like working hard and I'm a bit of a workaholic and actually I think there's two it's twofold one it, your confidence is eggshell thin and you and you think when you're not working that's it I'm never going to work again I'm not working at the moment you know we're in a pandemic um I've, I've got that feeling now I think am I ever going to work again am I on the scrap heap it's a terrifying scary feeling because uh, inside I know I've got so much to offer and I'm desperate to get my teeth into something because there's nothing like getting a script with a great part and meeting your fellow actors and putting something together as a team because working alone, which I mean, I'm not wasting my time. I'm, I'm trying to write and things like that. But it's very isolating. And I can be a bit of a loner anyway. 
and it's not really very good for me. I get very insular and a bit morose and a bit depressed, really. Um, so all of that, it's it's like I'm constantly trying to keep my spirits up and be positive and practice what I preach, you know, to people. And it's it's very hard. It's it's quite draining actually, um, and you feel exhausted just keeping going. But I mean, I guess that's no different to anybody that's out of work. So I'm not saying trying to say, oh, you know, feel sorry for me. You know, this is my choice of career, and I couldn't be without it. But there's also the other side where pe- pe- because you've been on the telly and that people have this thing that they think you loaded or that you know. I remember my window cleaner saying to me, oh, you'll be all right. You're famous. You'll get another job. Well, number one, I don't feel famous. You're only famous if someone's watched you on one of your programmes. A lot of people don't watch soaps or have watched anything I've been in. And number two, I think, well, no, it just doesn't work like that, does it? I think it's a preconceived idea that so many of us have because we we put the telly on and we go, oh, they're on our screens, they're famous. Um, you went back into Emmerdale in t- 2012. Was that wonderful again, going back into it and, and playing a character that you loved? Yes, it was. It was. It was a great, great timing actually, because I'd done, I'd done a year in Hollyoaks and, and sort of whilst I was pregnant actually, well I started Hollyoaks and I got pregnant with my first daughter, and uh, had her. And obviously, once you've got a child the whole job thing becomes much more complicated and harder because you, you don't want to, you know, you've got to be more picky, obviously, because your child comes first or they should do. Um, so then I was, I fell pregnant again with my second daughter and I thought, Oh, this is it. You know, life is over really. This, and what, what job am I going to get? And I was asked to go back to Emmerdale. So I was like, thank you, God, you know, that is a prayer answered. And I, it was hard because I took her with me. I went back, which was six weeks old because I'd had a cesarean and the, the producer at the time, Stuart Blackburn said to me, so when will you be able to drive? Because I met him when I was pregnant and I said, well, I'm having a cesarean so I can't drive until she's six weeks old. So he said, oh, okay. So they wrote me in to go back when she was six weeks old, you know. I mean, in retrospect, it was a little bit too soon. But, um, and I remember handing her over to, I, I paid for a, a chaperoned lady, a wonderful lady actually, Michelle, to look after her during, in between, you know, while I was on set. And I was breastfeeding her and I was driving, so I was driving over from Liverpool to Leeds. I was getting up at half past four in the morning, putting sleeping baby um, into the car seat. You know, she was so good though. And then we'd drive to Leeds. I'd get to Leeds for about quarter past six mm-hmm. in the morning and um breastfeed her wash her you know get her all ready express milk for michelle to to give her later on in the morning and i'd have milk that i'd expressed at weekends and frozen you know so that that i was like a little cow you know <laughs> milking myself <laughs> and um but i did it because i was so desperate to work and we, we were desperate by that point you know all the savings had gone and we really needed the money And it was just an amazing time. It was really, really hard. I took her with me to work for the first year and a half and then until she went to nursery school. Amazing. And again, I think that's something that um, no one would know. Perhaps would think that um, being in a soap is always glamorous. 
And that must have been an exhausting time in your life because working on a soap is anyway, but having a a, a newborn makes it 10 times as hard. Well, she was a very, very good baby. I was incredibly lucky because the first, my first daughter was a, a tricky baby and she would not have, I could not have done that actually with her, which is probably why, you know, I, I wasn't really working much when she was a baby. But um, with Olivia, she was very easygoing and just loved sleep, loved sleep, loved food, loved people. So she was ideal, you know, and, and I did feel guilty sometimes thinking, is this too much for her? You know, I was traveling and everything, but she was so good. She'd just go to sleep. When she was a bit older, she'd I put her in the car seat in the front next to me, and we used to hold hands. She used to hold my hand when we were going along, like on the motorway and everything. It was it was very cute. Wonderful. And, and Samantha, it must have felt great as well to have been able to do that because I think there are a lot of places of work where people can't do that. I was very very lucky, but I do remember saying to the producer, you know, because it was a no deal really if I couldn't have taken her with me. But he was like, yeah, of course you can. You know, that's no problem at all. I mean, they don't have a crush or anything, but, you know, there was a little room. Somebody provided a cot, which I don't actually think she ever used because she just used to lay back in her uh, pushchair thing and go to sleep. And Michelle used to put, like, a little screen around it so it was dark. And they used to go in the canteen, which would be quiet, you know, most of the time. So they, they weren't, you know, we weren't causing trouble and she wasn't a, a, a kind of noisy or you know difficult baby or anything like that luckily and what a great story to be able to tell her when she's older yeah um the character you played did you love her because Bernice had there are so many attributes that she had sensitive funny vulnerable was that wonderful playing a character that was so multifaceted Yes, it was. It was. I mean, I think every character, if you, when you get to play a character for a long time, you will find all those layers to that character, um, or you need to in order to give them staying power. Really, I think in a, in a soap, I was lucky. The writers wrote fantastically for her, and you know she was a little bit quirky, a little bit odd, and it's great playing comedy really because you don't have to take any of that difficult stuff home with you you know some of the storylines now that they they do in soaps it must be very hard to shake all those horrible Mm. tough storylines you know shake them off when you when you go home and so I you know I used to go home laughing really at some of the stupid things we'd had to do amazing (laughs) so you left last autumn and this year you brought out your first children's book yeah Rosemary and the Witches of Pendle Hill had that been an idea bubbling away inside for a while? Yeah, I wrote it. I uh, started writing it in September 2017, actually. So while I was filming Emmerdale, so I, it took me nine months to write. And um, when I'd finished it, I thought, right, OK, I've got to try and get a literary agent, which, I mean, all these things, they're so hard to do. The actual, you know, it's a nightmare. Anyway, so I wrote round to loads and loads of literary agents. Got you know, just kept getting rejections, blah blah blah. So eventually, I did get a literary agent. It was kind of more a bit, a little bit of luck, really. Um, and which I think this business, there's a lot of luck involved as well for success in this business. You know, it's being in the right place at the right time. It's sort of an alignment. I don't know. It's, it's a funny thing. So once I'd got uh, my literary agent. Um, we sort of 
she kind of like advised me <clears throat> on how to polish it, you know, before she sent it out to publishers. So we did, or I did that um, on her advice, really. And then, you know, it was sending it out to publishers. So the first round of submissions, we got very close with some of the big publishers, but it still ended up being no's. Then there was a se- then I did more edits. Then there was a second round of um, s- sort of smaller publishers. No, 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 no. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake. Because she she believed in it so much, my agent, you know, she was really excited about it. So I thought, I don't understand why this isn't, you know, coming off. And I'd written something else, which wasn't wasn't right, really. So we talked about that. So then I thought, right, OK, just put that on the back burner, really. And I work on something else, which I was working on during lockdown. And then out the blue, I got this email from her in April saying, this is amazing, you know, Agora Books want to publish it and they really love it and they want to publish it in the summer. So it was just out the blue. Amazing. Congratulations. That is fantastic. And um, so what is the premise? What's the story? So um, I'll try and do it in a nutshell. Um, It's basically about a girl called Rosemary who lives with her mum and dad and her little sister in a house. They live with four other witches and wizards who come and go, um, and she's always taken it for granted, but dad never sees them. And then one day, one of the witches disappears, um, and it coincides with uh, dad's cloud reappearing over his head because rosemary she sees colors around people and because dad suffers uh intermittently with depression when he's going through an episode she sees a cloud appear above his head so she thinks when the cloud appears that it has something to do with the fact that phyllis has gone missing so she thinks if we can find phyllis then dad's cloud might go away so that opens up in the whole adventure of them finding a portal in their house that leads to the witch world if you like the world where the witches have come from and we find out all about the the sort of backstory there and where the witches come from and how they're linked to Pendle Hill and who the baddie is really and it's um it sounds it goes on from there very (laughs) magical and mystical it is magical it's it's funny as well it's staffed you know and is it true did you dream some of this night yeah I dreamt about the um the four witches and wizards I had this very vivid dream and I could see them in the dream and their names came to me immediately so yeah I did dream some of it amazing and did you find the writing process quite easy was it cathartic I really enjoyed it I I didn't get to do it every day which actually suited me because I'd, I'd work for a day and then maybe I'd be work, working on Emmerdale for two or three days and then I'd come back and I'd have to I'd reread. And because I made the story um, quite complex with lots of different layers, it was very difficult sometimes. I think, oh, how am I going to make this work? And how has that going to happen? And, that's, and with, a, with this book, you wouldn't believe it, but you have to know your background inside out. And you have to know why people are doing things in, in the detail that you would with an adult book because you cannot fool children and it's got to all be absolutely clear and, you know, what's what the backgrounds are for everything. Is that a little bit like when you take on an acting role, the, the intent of the character and the subtext and, and the backstory that the character has, you need to be aware of all of that too? Yes, you do. You have to know what your character's history is. Um, 
anybody your character talks about, you have to have that picture in your head of who this person is, what your relationship is with them. It just, it just makes your performance more authentic and it shows then in your eyes that you are thinking of real events, you know. Is this this path of, of being an author one that you would like to stay on? Yeah, I'm writing a sequel actually, um, which which I'm doing at the moment. I am I am enjoying that. It's it's difficult, and people think if you can, if you write, you can sort of write anything that you want. But actually, the irony is, it doesn't work like that. I wrote a book in in lockdown, um, which is very sort of dear to me. But at the moment, I can't write that story because at the moment we are kind of being it's very difficult we so publishers will only look at certain stories that are from um certain groups of people you know for the authenticity kind of thing which is which is very difficult very strange because as a writer you research things do you know what i mean so if you've researched something thoroughly really there should be no reason why you can't write a story you know about that um so that that book is sort of on the back burner at the moment so not everything you write will automatically get accepted if you like you and know is that also a children's story the one on the yes. back burner it is yes it is so I'm writing a sequel to the Rosemead one at the moment um, because we left that so that there could be a sequel and since it got published I said to my agent well I'm going to start writing the sequel and she said yeah that's great so I'm doing that but I must admit it's very I find it very difficult to discipline myself to sit down every day I'm the kind of person that needs to, if I had a couple of days in the week where I was going off to do some acting work then that would sort of fill my need to have been with other people it would tick that box and then I could do a couple of days solid writing so I'm, I'm having to be quite strict with myself at the moment. Did you test the book out on your girls did they like it? Yeah, I did. Everything I write, I give give to my eldest daughter to read. So she's read, she's read everything. She's she's brilliant because she sort of says what she thinks and uh, you know, and is quite honest. So no, I'm I'm lucky there. You mentioned that you know you've been able to use lockdown to write. How has this time been for you? How have you found the last five and a half or so months? Um, tricky. It's been um. It's been difficult, hasn't it, for everybody? I mean, in some ways, when we first went to lockdown, I was crying and like everybody thinking, oh, God, this is awful. Then it wasn't too bad. We had some nice weather, didn't we? And I sort of got into a routine where it was nice having people around. So I'd I'd do the homeschooling and then I'd finish that at three and then I would take myself off and do a bit of writing for a couple of hours and we'd go out for a walk every day and we got into quite a, a... a routine um and I think it's sort of harder in a way now where you feel like you're coming out of it the kids have gone back to school but yet you're holding your breath all the time because you think what's going to happen no I, I think that like a lot of people are it's uh, a time where everything's changing almost on a daily basis and it's uh, tricky to navigate um what would be the next dream job is there a dream role that you would jump at okay so let's let's say so I'm channeling in my head in man, trying to manifest a Netflix series oh yeah like it that would be great because 
uh, I, ju- I just, I just, I could, I can sort of, that's where I'm at. So a Netflix series, a film and my book getting made into a film because I've, I've written myself apart, obviously, or written myself apart. But one that when I was writing, I thought, oh, if I was going to play a part, which part would I play? And I wouldn't play the mum because it's too close to kind of me, really, because the mum in the book is an actress as well. So I, I'd, I've chosen who else I, who I'd play. So. <laughs> I like it. So that is now out in the universe yeah. uh, to be picked up. Great. Yeah. Um, Samantha, how do you relax? What is your downtime like? Um, I don't really have much downtime. Um, I've started yoga again. But I don't really classify that as downtime. I classify it as my sort of daily exercise. But actually, I found this woman in America, Yoga with Adrian, okay. it's called, and she's brilliant. She's so sweet and very calming. So I'm quite enjoying that. But I think really the thing I like doing most is just kind of having, you know, if me and my husband have a date night and we can go out for dinner, um, just watching you know something we don't very often uh watch things on tv that we both will enjoy um we did watch the whole entire series of lost during lockdown which i got totally obsessed with he got fed up with it after like the third series i had to keep forcing him to watch it i really really loved it and i'm also watching nashville but on my own because he doesn't like it so it's (laughs) i find that quite relaxing and reading i love reading I meant to ask you, what have your parents made of, of your career? Have they been delighted to, to see how it's all unfolded? Yeah, they have. I mean, they're very, they keep me very grounded. Um, they're not in awe of or any of that, you know, but they're just very, very supportive. And my mum says to me, you know, if I'm having an off day and stuff, right, come on. She says, you've all, you know, something will prop up. It always does. Just, just be positive. Something will prop up. You know, and they're just very pragmatic and they're not sort of phased by any of it. I, I mean, you know, they're not like, oh, my God, my daughter's an actress or she's written this book. They're proud and they're pleased, but they're very grounded. Mm-hmm. I think that's lovely and probably the best way to be. And lastly, who would you say has been your biggest influence? Um, I guess in some ways I was very influenced early on by Catherine Hepburn mm-hmm. um, because I love her work and I read all the stuff about, I mean, she came from actually a very privileged background. So, you know, money does talk, but she was a very determined lady. And if people were rude to her or whatever, she didn't take any crap. And I, I would like to be a bit more like that, actually. You know, I've been in some situations where I'd love to turn around and say, uh, excuse me, no, you know, or whatever. And um, so I sort of try and, you know, try and channel that a bit because I think that I really admire that fact about her. And also I wrote to her when I was in my early 20s and I got this amazing letter back from her where she personally signed it. So I've got that framed wow. in drawers. That's um, amazing. So that, that's quite, yeah, that's lovely. So she she was very much someone that I would sort of look up to and... Uh, and, 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 you know, she's got that determination. Uh, she had that determination, really. That was actor and author Samantha Giles. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan. <laughs>